record on this computer. Um, so uh, again, I um, want to say thanks real quick to for everybody last week when I was on vacation for, for holding down the fort, and everybody said James did a great job um, in the message that he brought. Thanks to Tim. Uh, for, for emceeing, um, the service. And, and, uh, so I appreciate that. It's, it's, it's nice to be able to, to step away and, and take a time of vacation with family and, and, and trust and know that everything is going to be okay while we're gone. So, um, thank you for that. Uh, so we went back to Mobile, which is where I grew up. And, um, so one of the things that we always do when we go to meal is, uh, Mobile is I, I force my kids to drive around town to all my old haunts, right? And I just like drive by places and I like, that's where Bob lived and whatever. And this is where we always used to go here on Friday nights. And I used to play basketball in that, but I watched a guy get beat up right there, you know, and, and those kind of stories, right? And we drove by the high school and we were, we were talking about different things at my high school and just these things. And, and it's interesting because as what was unique about this trip is both my daughters now, right, are, are basically teenagers. Uh, their birthdays are today. Um, India turns 14 today. Alice turns 12 on, on Tuesday. And so they are basically both teenagers now. And so what's interesting is in the nostalgia, like the conversation shifts a little bit too, because I start telling stories about how I was a nerd and, and, you know, and how there were these cool kids that did cool kid things and I didn't do those cool kid things or whatever. But then that changes the conversation because then they start asking questions about those things. Like, like, why did people act this way? And why were these, this group of people, why were you not interested in being a pal? All this stuff like that. And, and so the topic of popularity came up a couple of times and we would, I would tell these stories about the nature of popularity and how I wasn't one of those people and, and all these things like that. Um, but it was interesting because it, it, it tied to the passage in kind of a weird way, because I think this passage in some ways, it, it's not the, what it's about, but it's the setting of it is this question of popularity. That's, that's because if, if you look at it, that the passage starts in sort of an unusual way. The comment that is made at the beginning is, is, it's just a little odd, okay? It doesn't sound like the normal intro to, to one of Jesus' stories. We often hear about Jesus, it says things like, uh, you know, well, Jesus was speaking to the crowds. So there was a large crowd that had gathered or something. But the details in this passage, I think, are drawing our attention to something in particular. So look at verse 1, Luke chapter 12, verse 1. So it says, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. Okay, so just that wording, right, that so many thousands had gathered to the point that they were trampling on each other. Like, you, you, the, the scene that I have in my head is like all those... uh uh, uh videos that you see of like the Beatles or, or Elvis or stuff like that. Like these people are just going, ah, and you know, and they're, and they want to be near Jesus. Um, they're pushing over each other and trying to, to get to Jesus. And so in the context of these thousands of people clamoring to see him, Jesus, it says, speaks to his disciples first. And I think part of the whole, again, the setting of this whole passage, what the passage is about is hypocrisy. But the setting of it is, is sort of this idea of be careful about popularity because you end up doing all kinds of things to keep yourself in good standing with the people you are trying to, to um, appease or be a part of or something like that. And it makes us ask the question and, and look to those issues. What will you do to make sure that people continue to like you? 
Like, what are you willing, what is it willing, what are you willing to cost it to cost you for people to continue to like you, to think you're the cool thing, to be the person that the throngs of people want to get to and want to see? So Jesus is warning the disciples. And what does he warn them specifically about? Verse 1, or is it verse 2? He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And what is that leaven? Which is hypocrisy. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The Pharisees had maintained a certain level of popularity and influence by presenting themselves as 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 holy, right, as righteous, as people who were uh, uh, taking faith seriously and taking religiosity seriously. Um, and I think probably the case is that James talked about it last week. That righteousness of the Pharisees, though, was was a superficial righteousness. It wasn't authentic. On one side, it was legalistic. And so it wasn't authentic. Two, it was unrighteously motivated. It wasn't, it was, a, it was an out front. It wasn't from a heart out kind of righteousness. It was an outside, um, kind of righteousness. And then, and then moreover, it wasn't even a helpful righteousness. The standard that it was calling people to actually hurt them. Um, it made it harder to come to, to saving faith, um, than they would have been without it. Okay. And so all of those issues, um, were the, what the righteousness of the Pharisees looked like. And, and, Luke, or Jesus in this passage, and Luke writing about it, says that the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy. So probably if you've studied your Bible for just a little amount of time, you know what the word hypocrisy, its, it's, its root is. So the word hypocrisy comes from a Greek word that means to play a part in a play. That's what it means. And so it's pretending to be something you're not. Oftentimes we think of it in terms of the theater, especially in ancient theater. What would you have done? You, In all roles, you would have worn a mask. You put on some sort of outer covering to pretend that you were something while on the inside you were something completely different. And so the Pharisees are those kind of people. Their leaven um, is, is hypocrisy. In other places, Jesus compares them to whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they look white and pristine and marbly, and on the inside, they are full of dead men's bones. And then moreover, there's this other sort of a dual illustration here, not only of the word hypocrisy, but of this idea of the Pharisees having eleven. They're teaching, and this hypocrisy is eleven. That's, that's saying it's, it's like a yeast, which throughout scripture is a symbol of defilement. It's a symbol of impurity. You remember back to the Old Testament when they would come to the, um, to the when was it? Was it the beginning of the new year? And they would cleanse the house of all yeast. And so they would take the old, anything that had yeast in it, and throw it out. And they would begin again the whole process of, of leavening the bread and things like that. And so that was a, that was a picture of sort of cleaning the house of, of its impurity and its defi- defilement. The same way yeast grows, it multiplies, it works itself through a whole lump of dough. Jesus is saying that's how this hypocrisy will work amongst you too if all if what you're really concerned about is is pleasing the people who are around you. Little by little it will multiply, it will grow, it'll work itself through you. And so I think Jesus is kind of getting at in these in these the larger topic, but what are the games that we are willing to play? What are the lies that we are willing to tell? What are the, the parts in, in this charade that we are willing to, to, to do to keep ourselves in with the right people that we want to be in with? 
Okay, and and I, I don't know that Jesus actually addresses that question exactly directly, but he basically just reminds us of a number of things where he says, when you're making these decisions, here's the things you need to remember in this process. The first one we find is in there in verse two, and that is that is this. Jesus reminds us that the the, the lie of, of sin and hypocrisy, the truth will always come out. The truth will always come out eventually. You can be a hypocrite. You can be one person on the outside and be another person on the inside, but the truth is always going to come out eventually. Verse 2, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So here's the deal. We all need to hear that right there. Because it is probably the primary lie of sin. And that is this. Nobody will know. Right? Nobody has to know about this. I can indulge this sin without losing my respect in the community. I can indulge in this sin and nobody has to find out about it. That may be the main lie that sin and hypocrisy tells us. You know, it's, it's funny how sin works. Certain sins, we don't even treat like they are sins. There are certain sins that we just act like that's just how life is. Uh, gossip seems like we just, we just do it all the time and nobody even seems to care. A critical spirit, covetousness, unthankfulness. All of those things are just like, it's just how we are. We just live in them all the time. And then some sin, though, is we recognize it's a sin, but it's so universal that we can all kind of give a wink and a nod to it, right? So some of us have problems with anger or doubt or laziness, and we all just kind of go, I mean, yeah, it's a sin. We all know it's a sin, but right, it's just, it's the kind of thing that, that we all deal with. And so we don't feel bad confessing it. I don't feel bad confessing that I'm lazy sometimes because I know that you're lazy sometimes too. We're all lazy sometimes. It doesn't feel like it's that big a deal even though I acknowledge that it's a sin. But then there are these other sins, right? There are some sins that we are ashamed of. Uh, we're either embarrassed of them for our own, or we know that they would be offensive to other people. And we could go through a list of those, certainly things like pornography or substance abuse are oftentimes that we think, there are things that we're like, and I can't let anybody find out about this, because if somebody found out about it, I would be shamed and excluded from, from the community that I want to be a part of. So certain sins are embarrassing or offending, and yet, we decide to run the risk, right? We decide to say, man, if I can just keep this hidden, I can keep on doing this thing and, and living in this way, and nobody has to know. But here's the deal. Look at me and listen to me, because this is what Jesus is saying. It's going to come out. Somehow, it's going to come out. Somebody's going to find out about it. It is going to be brought before the world. It's funny, not funny. It's 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 crazy. Um, some of you have kept up, and we talked about it before service about the 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 goings on in the SBC this last week. The SBC had its convention, and man, in the weeks leading up to it, it got hot, and contentious, and accusations, and all these things flying around, and, and and these different stories, things about sexual abuse cover up kind of issues, uh, things about racially insensitive. Uh, or discriminatory, discriminatory comments and, and actions, um, lots of stuff thrown all different ways. Um, and here's the deal. Uh, some, some people were saying, well, what's your opinion on all these things, Ash? And the answer is this, man, I don't know. 
uh, I don't know who to listen to anymore. I don't know who to believe. Um, are people exaggerating things? Do people have political motives behind things? Are people steering stuff and, and whatever? I'm not sure what the answers are and who the right party is and all these things. But here's what I do know. It's all going to come to light. All these things that people said or didn't say, all these things that people did or didn't do, it's all going to come to light eventually. And everybody is going to be held account for everything. The things they said in private, the things where they thought nobody else was listening, the things that they did when nobody else was looking, it's all going to come to light eventually. So Jesus warns us of that. He says, you think you can make some compromises. You think you can do some things that you know to be wrong, particularly in the case of keeping influence or popularity or whatever. But know this, it's all going to come to light one day, every single thing. Whether that's going to be now in this in, in your own life, which is probably the case, but at the very least it's going to come to light on the day of judgment. You know, here's one of the cool things about the way sin works in our lives. We talked about this in, in our mortification of sin um, discussion as we went through that book. There is a way to disarm the power of sin. And part of that is through the power of confession and repentance. Part of the way we disarm sin, that we take away its power, is by doing the very thing that we're afraid is going to happen. By putting it out there in the world, right? By instead of getting found out about our sin, about outing ourselves because of our sin and saying, no, I'm going to tell somebody about these things. I am going to seek their gospel voice in my life, seek their forgiveness in my life. And in doing so, the shame and the guilt of that thing is going to be deflated in some ways. And I'm going to be able to have a weapon against this sin that I didn't have before, which is exactly how God would do things, right? that he would make the way you solve something the very way that you're scared of doing. James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So that you may be healed. Without the confession, without the prayer, I don't know that there's going to be any healing for those things. And then he continues, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Because that's the first thing that we see. Jesus says, it's all going to come to light. Know that. And then two, he says this. So fear. Be afraid. But then dot, dot, dot. But also don't be afraid. So watch this. Verse four. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom, you, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So here's the deal. Hypocrisy is motivated, if you think about it, by fear. The reason why we are hypocrites is because of fear. We are afraid of being rejected by whoever. Sometimes we're even afraid of being rejected to the point of persecution by people. And so what we do is we, we what we realize is we don't escape rejection, though, by being hypocritical. All we do is actually, when we look at it rightly, all we do is push it off and exacerbate the rejection. Because what we find is that if we hide from the rejection of the world, that we end up receiving the rejection of God, which is a much greater rejection. Not just someone who can kill 
the body, but someone who has the authority to cast us into hell. It may be hard to stand before the world and receive its mocking or its attack or its persecution. It may be hard to say the thing that is true to your adoring crowd and have that adoring crowd walk away. But it will be far more difficult when we stand before God and give an account for our lives. And at the end of the day, and at the end of time, it will only be God's opinion that matters about it. I guarantee no one will stand before God on the day of judgment and go, you know, I really wish I'd lied about this thing back then so that I could make those five people that I work with like me more. Like nobody's going to think that. I remember one time working at a restaurant uh, when I was in college or, or seminary or something like that. And I was new and it was one of my first days working and it was still part of the training process. And I was standing at a task with a manager and the manager was basically like, okay, this is the way we want you to do this task. We want you to do this, this, and this, and then do it this, this, and this way. And that's how you do this task. Understood? And I'm like, got it. And he said, cool, have at it. So he walked off. Well, there's another employee standing right next to me. And you know what that employee said? They said, you don't have to do it that way. Nobody does it that way. And so there's this weird moment there, right? It's just a little example of this kind of thing. Because I was like, okay, like I'm new. And I don't want to be like the toady yes man. Like, I don't want to be that guy, right? Um, I don't want this guy to think that I'm I'm uh, some kind of jerk or something like that. I don't want him to say, think that I'm, a, I'm, I'm looking at him saying, oh, well, you're a liar, dude, because I just heard I'm going to do it anyway. Like, it, there's this moment of truth, right, where you're sort of like, so what am I supposed to do at this moment? I've got a guy standing over me going, don't be a stooge. Don't do it that way because nobody does it that way. Where, but I had my boss just tell me what to do. Well, you maybe you could guess what I did. Um, I did it the way my boss told me to do it, right? Even though this person is standing over me and looking at me as, as, as I do this task, whatever. Because here's the deal. Um, it didn't really matter what this guy thought of me. At the end of the day, he had very little authority. He could look at me as, as, a, as a yes man or a suck up or something like that. And, and perceive me that way. But at the end of the day, what was really important is me having this job and, and my boss was the one who just told me what I was supposed to do. And so the deal was, is that I knew who to fear in that very small situation. And so Jesus is again asking us the question, do you know who you're supposed to fear in this, this situation? Whose opinion and whose command and whose acceptance or however you want to look at it really matters in this situation? Now, here's something cool, though, about the passage. Because, again, that makes... that I think people are scared by the language of that passage. God is the one who has the authority not only to kill you, but to throw you into hell. That is not the way that most people like to think about God. Okay? But notice something, and I love how this passage has a refusal to oversimplify our relationship with God. Jesus tells us to fear God. But then look immediately. We are told not to fear Him. Because he's the God who knows us and cares for us and watches over us in the minutia, in the intricacy of our lives. So verse 6 says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. But why even, or why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered? And then what does it say? Fear not. You are more valuable than sparrows. 
Okay, so so there's this balance there. And again, I love how in a previous generation, you would have heard hellfire and brimstone kind of pastors like be like, fear God because he can kill you and throw you into hell. That would be this side. And then now we have sort of seeker sensitive or whatever pastors nowadays who would say, you shouldn't think of God in terms of fear, right? None of that. That's crazy. God isn't a God of fear. He's a God of love. The perfect love casts out fear. We shouldn't have to worry uh, about any of that fear. But I love in the same passage, Jesus is presenting both sides of this thing. He says, you know, you need to fear. You need to fear God because he is the only authority and he has the power over your life and over your eternity. But at the same time, God's not the kind of God you have to fear. He loves you. He cares for you. He's going to watch out for you. When you're worried that you are going to lose something in this process, if I do what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to lose something. The reality is, is God says, I know the hairs in your head, man. I care about the sparrows and they're functionally worthless. Okay. Um, they are so small and so little and so not valuable that two of them are sold for a penny. You can't buy anything for a penny. You can't buy a stick of gum for a penny, okay? But he says, but I know every single one of them by heart, and I care for them. I provide for them. And do you not think that I'm going to watch over you in this process? Yeah, but, but Ash, I don't want to be a weirdo, right? I, I don't want to be ostracized by my community. The community that you have is in Jesus Christ. Care about that community. That's part of what the church is supposed to be. This is supposed to be a community of weirdos where we can all get together and just be like, you know what? The, my boss says I'm a weirdo. And it's like, yeah, but you're not. You're one of us. You're one of, you're, you're one of Jesus people. Okay. You're one of this new community. It gives us an alternate community. And so who do you care about? It's a reminder not to oversimplify our relationship with God, but it's also a reminder to look to the bottom of our motivations on these things. Love and fear are powerful motivations for, for our daily uh, decisions. But Jesus is saying, who should you truly love? Who should you truly fear? The false authority of the world or the true authority of God? The fleeting approval of the world or the eternal approval of God? So again, like that story at the restaurant, at the end of the day, I need to know who I'm accountable to. And who I really love and what that person has called me to do. And the reality is, is I think, again, we see sort of that at the end of this. Because, again, talking about this idea of popularity, it's like, okay, well, God, well, what do you want me to do then? What, what should I be about? If you're warning me to watch, you know, what I do to try to keep this, this attention, then what should I be about? What are the things that I ought to do? Our calling is to bear witness to the truth. That's that's who we're supposed to be. To wisely, compassionately bear witness to who Jesus is. Verse 8, I tell you that everyone who acknowledges me before men, that's what we're called to do. That is the ultimate job that we have been given. We are to acknowledge Jesus Christ before men. And if we do that, the Son of Man also will acknowledge us before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So again, our calling is, as followers of Jesus, is to bear witness, to acknowledge Jesus and everything he has called us to before men. That's the center of our lives. That's the center of all we do. If we're in a situation where we say, you know, my life would be a lot easier if I didn't acknowledge Jesus and I didn't acknowledge him before men, then that's the situation that we're dealing with. That's, that's the point that we're at here. Jesus is saying, that's what you're called to do. I don't think it means that we beat people over the head with it, certainly. 
It doesn't mean that there are no areas of life where um, it's not difficult. There's lots of areas where it's difficult, but it does also mean that there are no areas of life where you get to put Jesus on the sideline, where you get to say, you know what? Uh, I can talk about Jesus and bear witness to him everywhere, but not among my workplace. Um, and again, I'm not saying that that means you, there are no situations where you go, no, right now we're not, we have a job and, and I work for this place and we're about this task, right? Um, and so it doesn't mean that you were just walking around all the time going, I don't want to do my job right now. I just want to talk to you about Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. Um, we can, we can, we can recognize that there are moments where we have other responsibilities that aren't, aren't that, that thing in the moment. But it does mean that this, there's no place where Jesus is not present. There's no places where Jesus, where, where our bearing witness is, is off limits in some way. You can't just say, I'll talk about Jesus anywhere except with my unbelieving family. I'll talk about Jesus anywhere except for my workplace. I'll talk about with Jesus with anybody except for my unbelieving friends. And again, I'll be honest, you know this, and I think I can say this freely because you're all, you have been in this situation too. There are lots of times in my life where I go, I'm in a group of people and I go, you know what? I don't, I don't want to wear Jesus on my sleeve here. I think that's, that's, sin in my own heart. Okay. But I feel that way. I go, man, I, 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 I'm not going to hide Jesus. If they ask, if someone looks at me and says, Hey, are you a Christian? I'm going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, and I'm going to explain to them what I believe about Jesus, but I, I don't, maybe I, it's because I don't want to hinder. I don't want Jesus. I feel like Jesus is going to hinder the way I interact with people. Or I feel like Jesus is going to hinder the way other people interact with me. That as soon as I go, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, they're going to be like, oh, okay. Um, and then all of a sudden, everything's going to get weird. And I think we all ex- have experienced that, right? Uh, and, and, we, and it's an awkward thing to be in. And so sometimes you just go, I think I've told the story before of sitting in a literature class at Auburn and a teacher standing up making a Bible reference. And then he said, you all know what that's about. You're all from the South. And everybody looked clueless, and it was a Bible reference. And I was like, I know what that means. And then he was like, come on, you go. So somebody tell me what that reference is from. And I was like, I know, but I don't want to be the one that everybody knows knows. Um, and so I just kind of kept my head down. And then the teacher actually got mad because he was not a believer, but he knew that many of us must be because it was the same. And, and so he got mad, and he was like, you guys are all – lying or being hypocrites right now because you won't admit that you know what this is talking about. And finally I went and I said it and he was like, yes, that's what it's talking. And he just moved on. It was a weird little moment. This lost professor of mine, basically like calling us all out for being hypocrites Um, because that's what we were doing. Cause we were, we didn't want to be the person who, um, who was the Jesus freak in the group. Right. But here's the deal. Jesus is saying, who do you fear? Who do you love? Whose authority is important to you? That's the temptation. And see, I think it's interesting because that's why Jesus complicates this whole passage with talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's why in the middle of this passage, like all of a sudden he just drops this bomb where he's like, verse 10, everyone who speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You go, 
what is that about? And so you get that question all the time. It's one of those perennial kind of Bible study church questions. What's the blasphemy? What's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the unforgivable sin? And the reality is, is honestly, we don't have time to go into it today. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I think it is, and I'm just going to skip all my work. Right, So it's like when you took a math test and you were supposed to show your work to prove that you knew what it actually was. I'm going to skip the work, and I'm just going to tell you my answer. But it's because it's a whole sermon to itself, okay? And I'm going to tell you why Jesus drops it into the middle of this whole passage, okay? Um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in my understanding of the Scripture, is persistent unbelief and rejection of the gospel. In spite of what not only you ought to know to be true, but in fact, probably do know to be true. Okay? So a lot of times you'll hear, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is just unbelief. That's what it, the unforgivable sin is not receiving Jesus. It's not believing in Jesus. And I go, kind of, but it's more complicated than that. Because it's about a persistence of unbelief. That's why it's always Jesus talking oftentimes to the Pharisees and in reference to the Pharisees about what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Because the Pharisees knew the word of God. They knew what to look for in a Messiah. They should have known better. They watched the miracles. They saw all these testimonies to who Jesus was. But what happened at the end of the day is they said, it'll cost me too much to follow Jesus. And so I refuse to do it. He's probably who he says he is, but I won't do it. The Holy Spirit is telling me in my head and in my heart that Jesus is the one, and yet it will be too costly to follow him, and so I refuse to. I don't even know that a lost, a, a non, a person who has no background in the faith, I don't even know if they could commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, because they don't know enough to persistently reject the way someone who does know all these things. It's again, why Jesus doesn't accuse tax collectors and prostitutes of almost committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But he says to the Pharisees a lot, you're about to do it. Okay. Now, why would Jesus drop that right in the middle of this thing? Okay. Well, I think the reason why um, is because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is essentially hypocrisy to the nth degree. It's like the last stop on the hypocrisy train. Okay. It is in reference to the gospel it is knowing what is true and consciously rejecting that and putting on a false front to say, I don't accept that. Deep down, I know it's right, but I, I do not accept it. I will continue to live as apart from the gospel. And Jesus says, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what I think that includes is the fact that it means that the the saving work of the Holy Spirit, the converting work, the speaking to you in your heart and turning you to Jesus Christ, that God will literally cease to do that in that person. And therefore, you will never come to Jesus because the Holy Spirit will have ceased to work in your life because of your persistent rejection. Okay? That's what I think it is. But the reason he puts it here is because of this issue of hypocrisy. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the, the ultimate level of hypocrisy. And again, we recognize, and we've all been there, it is in the moment of persecution or in the moment of, of trial that hypocrisy is most tempting to us. It's tempting to gain access or influence or belonging. Sometimes it's even more tempting to avoid persecution or rejection in some way. And you are 
probably, and again, I think we've all experienced this. You've been nervous in those situations. You felt the tension of it. You felt the tension of saying, should I acknowledge who I am in Christ before these people, or should I just keep my mouth shut and let this thing keep on rolling? In the moment you're scared, in the moment you don't know what is the good and right thing to say, you want to be loving, you want to be kind, You want to be truthful. You want to be faithful. But you also recognize that you're weak in these things, that you're nervous about them. You you know that you're prone to take the easy way out on these situations. Or maybe even worse, you're not prone to take the easy way out. You are the kind of person who loves getting into these situations because you love to open the doors and drop the bombs of Jesus and the gospel on people all the time. And you love offending people with the gospel and you love offending people with Jesus Christ because, because you like doing that. You like making an issue out of it. You feel like somehow it is, it is, it it is your righteousness or something like that. We all experience that tension when it comes to, to living faithfully uh, and not hypocritically. But again, what does Jesus point our attention to? The God who we are accountable to. That God does not abandon us in those moments. What does he say to us in verse 11? And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So again, Probably none of us have ever been in quite the situation where we've been put before rulers and authorities and and uh, public officials to give an answer for our faith. But we may have had to go before bosses or friends or influencers or people that we cared about their opinion or even family members or something like that. And there's always that moment of, of nervousness and how am I going to say and what am I going to do and how is this going to go over? But Jesus reminds us, I'm there with you. The Holy Spirit is there with you in these things. He doesn't abandon you to this. God doesn't say, be hardcore. Stand on the wall, do your job, and I'll see you like that. He doesn't do that. He is always with us in these things. Giving us words, sweetening our speech, helping us to speak in gentleness and truth and love. And and here's the cool thing, and I think I've said this a couple times in the last few weeks, but it's just something that God has impressed upon my heart. We talk about in this world that we are living in like we've got to stand up for the faith, and it's going to cost us something. That's sort of the general line. But recognize that sometimes standing up for the faith not only doesn't cost you anything, but it actually becomes the catalyst for all kinds of good that comes from that. Like we assume that everything is going to go south and that it's going to be a sacrifice for us. And that happens sometimes. Sometimes standing up for the faith means you are going to sacrifice. But many times what happens is you stand up for the faith and things actually get better. Because the God uses it to draw people to Jesus Christ and to bless other people. And so again, I, I think I've told this story. I don't know if I've told it in a, in the context of a sermon or just in like small groups and stuff like that. And I'll close with, with this, this story. And it's, I think it's a great illustration of everything that Jesus says. Um, I come in here on Friday mornings and there's a group of men that meet in here for Bible study or book study and, and they just kind of talk and, and they're guys from different traditions and a little further down the, the track in terms of their faith and, and, and their age and, uh, no offense guys. Um, and, and so I like coming in, just listening to him talk and sitting and, and being, being a part of it. And one of them shared the story the other day of his great niece. I think he is who it was. And she competes at the college level in a, in a sport. Um, 
uh, at, at a decent sized university. And, uh, it's, as you probably know, most of you, it's pride month. And, um, at right before pride month happened, the coach came to the team one day and said, Hey guys, uh, here's what we're going to do is a team unity thing is I've got these shirts. They, they tie our, um, team logo and our team sport into a pride, uh, theme. We are all going to take these shirts and we're going to go be a part of the pride parade in our community as, as a team. Like it's going to be our team going and supporting, um, the, the, the pride event. And this girl is a follower of Jesus. Um, she believes in a biblical understanding of human sexuality. And so she was like, I don't want to do this. And she didn't say this. This is in her head. And she was like, I don't, I don't agree with that. I, I certainly am not interested in going and promoting it in terms of a celebration or whatever, but I, I, I don't think that these things are right. I don't think this is the way God designed it. I don't, I don't think we should do that. But nobody said anything. The team just kind of went, okay. And so she kind of looked around and thought, what do I do at this moment? If I speak up, I mean, if you've ever been on a sports team, right? Okay, at the college level, again, let's say that. That means this girl's dedicated most of her life at this point to getting to this point, right? It's all led up to this. She's on scholarship. Um, she's thousands of hours into this, right? Team dynamics are a weird thing too, man. It's very cohesive. You, you, you give something that makes you on the outs with the team. What will the consequences of that be for the group? What will the consequences of that be for her position on the team in terms of, of, um, the sport and things like that? And, and she said in her head, she's like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't want to be a part of this, but I don't know what to do. And so at some point, the spirit spoke to her and I don't know the exact words, uh, he said, but I got a feeling like he said some things out of Luke chapter 12. And he said, remember who you belong to. Remember whose authority in your life is most important. Remember what you were supposed to, um, speak. And she raised her hand and she said, um, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think I can do that. Uh, I don't, I don't think, it's not something that I believe in, and I just don't feel comfortable being a part of that. And then guess what happened? So I think we would, the narrative that we would be told is that what should have happened at that point is the whole team should have said, well, you're a bigot, and uh, if you don't get out of this room right now, you know, we're going to whatever. You're off the team. Your whole life is ruined. You lose your scholarship. Go back to Podunk. That's not what happened. You know what happened? She said, I don't think I can do that because I don't believe those things and I don't think that's right. And then another kid said, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that either. I don't think I can do it either. And a third and a fourth and a fifth. And by the end of it, about two thirds, three quarters of the team all said, I'm not comfortable doing it either. That's not something that, that I want to do. And so then the coach, I'm sure, was a little bit taken back by it, but said, okay, well, you don't have to do it if you don't want to do it. The cool thing was is that in that moment, standing up and saying what she was supposed to say, right, not hatefully, not attacking or anything like that, just, just standing true to the Word of God, emboldened other people to stand up for the Word of God. And the consequences of it were not dire. The consequences were a blessing, that other people were able to gain courage from her action 
um, and, and live faithfully and, and do what they were supposed to. That's what I, man, we should be encouraged by that story, okay? I'm not promising you that's the way it's going to turn out. You may stand and say what you were supposed to, and it may have lots of costs, but also it may be the catalyst for other people um, living faithfully, standing up for what they believe, following Jesus Christ um, in, in an honest and authentic and upfront kind of manner. Amen? Makes sense? Um, so what I want to do is, is again, as we kind of close a lot of services, I just want to go to the Lord in prayer, and and I want you to ask that God would help you to be the kind of person that we're talking about here. It's a weird, scary, difficult thing to stand and speak in a culture that doesn't believe the things that you say. But let me assure you is that in the New Testament, it was a way more antagonistic culture, okay? Um, we are speaking into a culture that, at least in some ways, has at least some broad concept of these things, that we have 2,000 years of Western history to at least give them some sort of underpinning. The people of the New Testament were walking into a brave new world, right, where nobody believed these things. Everybody rejected them. And yet what happened when they spoke the truth in love, the Holy Spirit moved and changed people's life and draw them, drew them to Jesus Christ. So let's pray that he would do that, the same thing in our own lives, that we would be courageous, that we would be humble, that we would be faithful, and that in all things we would faithfully give witness to the Son of God uh, in the world around us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, your word tells us that there will come a time when uh, men are no longer interested in the truth, um, that they will no longer care about what is um, right or what is uh, true or what is righteous. God, but that they will want their ears to be tickled. Father, we recognize that we may be living in such an era right now that speaking the truth, um, that acknowledging your son Jesus before men um, may come with rejection because people are uninterested in hearing it at this moment. Um, that we live in, a, in, a, in an era where um, there will not only be rejection, but, but sacrifice to be paid for those things. God, but we also believe that your Holy Spirit is working, that you are moving. Um, and just like Jesus told uh, Nicodemus, God, that, that the, that your spirit is moving like the wind. We don't see where it uh, comes from. We don't know where it's going, but God, we see it affecting the world around us. When when your people are faithful, uh, we see the spirit working uh, through those, those events. And so we ask that you would help us to be those people. God, that in all things and in all places, that we would be faithful to your word, that we would not worry about um, the 
the way the world receives these things, that we would not worry about the possibility of rejection. God, that we would authentically um, bear witness to your son in everything that we do. Knowing, God, that, that you are all, our ultimate authority, that you are our ultimate love. God, that we would not um, live with the popularity and the acclaim of man if it cost us faithfulness to you. Help us to do that, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. see you glad you're here this week um we'll uh i think we're going to be in luke another week and then we're going to take our um
summer psalms break, and so we'll we'll go through a number of psalms over the course of July. We've got a couple of people who are um, uh, going to come speak. Uh, James is going to share with us again in three or four weeks. Uh, Cody's going to come. and seen Cody in a while. Um, Cody's going to come and uh, and share with us one week, and so we'll have a couple of um, different people come in and just just kind of taking a psalm that God has laid on their heart and and expounding on it um, for us. So next week we'll be still be in Luke, and then and then after that we'll we'll uh, go to the Psalms. So uh, again, uh, glad you're here. Good to see you. Hope you have a great week. Uh, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.